0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. I mentioned uh, a few moments ago that we are on our way through First Timothy. This morning, we are in the last chapter of First Timothy. We're going to be in First Timothy chapter six. Verses 1 and 2. And this is an interesting passage, and it's kind of interesting as I was studying it this past week. Because over the past few weeks, as we've looked at uh, elders, as we've looked at uh, pastors and their calling, as we've looked at the charge to take care of the elderly in our family and to take care of widows in our midst, I was actually relieved to get to this passage on slaves— because I feel like it is so applicable for us today. No matter our vocation, no matter our calling, it is applicable for us. And as I was thinking about this passage, I, I just began to wrestle through the question of how many non-Christians do we know? How many non-Christians do you know? How, how many of you are able to spend some time with those who are not a part of the church I'll confess, as a, as a pastor, as the dad of young children, it is not as much as it should be for myself. My life could be and often is filled with countless interactions with Christians, and when I get home after work, all I really want to do is to be a good dad, take care of my kids, and to give my wife a break if it is possible. Many of you may be able to relate, and you might feel like it is difficult for you to interact with non-Christians. And as I was wrestling through this, studying this passage, I, I realized that there are really just three spheres in our lives today where we interact with people who are not of the same faith, who are not a part of the church. We interact with neighbors, we interact with others at our children's events, and we interact with others At our job or at our workplace. Now, neighbors is a great way to get to know those who don't know Jesus. I'm I'm sure uh, all of us have neighbors who do not believe in the gospel, who have not placed their faith in Jesus. And yet at the same time, since about the invention of air conditioning and the advent of television, especially cable television... We've seen a radical shift in our culture. Last night, as I was driving down Main Street at 930 at night, I just noticed how many people were out and about. Because of Flag Fest, there were so many people out mingling. And what struck me was how rare that is today. Most of the time, we find ourselves in our own houses, enjoying the air conditioning, which I'm a big fan of focused on our family and so even though our neighbors can be non-christians the, the influence that we are able to have over them has has probably shrunk over the past 30 years another sphere where we can interact with others who don't believe the gospel is at our children's events when we rub shoulders with other parents we can we can get to know them but oftentimes the relationships can feel shallow Our lives are so busy, they're so frenetic, that sometimes we can't build on those relationships in the way that we might like. That brings us to this third sphere, our workplace, or our vocation, as I want to consider it. It doesn't matter if you have a hands-on job working with patients or with students doesn 't mean it doesn 't matter if you are working behind a desk or under a car, whether you are behind a counter or whether you are wrangling children. God has oftentimes given us a platform an opportunity to interact with non Christians through our vocation as our culture becomes more polarized becomes more Uh, Just focused and siloed into people that we that we just agree with these interactions with others Can diminish Except for at the workplace The workplace is one of the last places where natural interactions between christians and non-christians Can occur and that's why I think it's imperative for us to begin thinking of our work as a platform To begin thinking of our work as an opportunity for us to serve God as well as to serve others and to honor him in doing this. We have an opportunity to influence not just those who are around us, but also for some of us, the next generation or those that we may only interact with once or twice in our lives. We can make a kingdom impact with those that we might not have been able to interact with if it were not for our vocation. And because of this, I don't want us to think of jobs or I don't want us to think of our jobs as work or jobs or career. I want us to use this word vocation. It might seem like I'm splitting hairs, but the word vocation is rooted in the idea of calling. It comes from the Latin word vocare, meaning to call. God has given to each of us a vocation, a calling. Pastors have a vocation. Because of that calling, that vocation, they can honor God and they are called to honor God with their actions. The same is true for nurses, for stay-at-home mothers, for teachers, for the store clerk. It's not even reserved for those who are in working age, those who are retired or students. All of us have a vocation. As a dad of a two-year-old, I would even argue that toddlers have a vocation. They have a unique calling to live and to love and to enjoy life in a way that can bring honor and glory to God. And I think that that idea has everything to do with this morning's passage. This morning, we're just looking at two verses, passage, uh, two verses that are, are, are addressing slaves, telling slaves to conduct themselves in their day-to-day lives in a way that can exert influence over watching eyes. We're going to talk about this issue of, of slavery here in a few moments. But have you ever considered that you have the same opportunity? That the work that you do, whatever that is... In your vocation. The work that you do is done before a watching world. And really that's our charge this morning. As we look at this passage. Just one simple statement. One simple phrase. We are called to work well before a watching world. We are called to work well before a watching world. Whether we realize it or not. Whether others realize it or not. We conduct our work before others, before people who are watching and observing. And whether you want to or not, the, the way that you live your life, the way that you work, the way you live out your calling as a student or as a parent or as a teacher or as a thousand other things, how you live that out from nine to five will reflect either positively or negatively, not just upon yourself, but upon jesus as well if you have a bible i invite you to open up to first timothy chapter six i'm going to be in the first two verses here please follow along as i read aloud let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of god and the teaching may not be reviled those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This passage is addressed to slaves. Last chapter that we were in, chapter five. Uh, Timothy B, Paul, excuse me, is writing to Timothy, and he begins to look at different segments of the church's population. He spent some time looking at how we are to interact with the the widows in our congregation. And then he spent some time saying that we are to interact in a certain way with pastors in the congregation. And now he, he focuses on slaves. And he begins talking to slaves and say, this is how you are to conduct your lives. This is how you're supposed to live out the gospel in your specific context. In the first century, slavery was everywhere. Some estimates say that there were 50 or, mil, 50 or more million slaves in the Roman Empire. For context, the, the upward estimates of the total population of the Roman Empire was about 200 million. So roughly one-fourth of the population were slaves in the first century. In large cities such as Rome and Corinth and Ephesus, where our letter is written to, up to one-third of the population were slaves. It's also important for us to remember that when the gospel spread in these contexts and in these congregations, it was most vigorously received by the poor by the outcast, by the marginalized. And so a large portion of the church that Timothy is overseeing, a large portion of the church in Ephesus that Paul is writing to are slaves or ex-slaves, those who have been freed. And so as Paul is writing this letter, he's, he's concerned about the state of the church, the health of, of the church, and so he he takes some time to briefly address the slaves in the midst of the congregation. What's interesting is that Paul does this in the first place by addressing them specifically. Paul is implicitly giving them value. He's implicitly saying that they have value in God's economy, in God's way of life, because I am going to address how God wants you to live as. A slave. Slavery was common in the first century, but you look at a passage like this and you begin to wonder, well, why does the Bible just talk about how to live as a slave and doesn't spend any time talking about the abolition of slavery? Why doesn't it tell people to get rid of slaves? Is Paul, by extension the New Testament... Are they condoning slavery in a way that actually continues to support this evil industry? Paul's passage here has been used and misused throughout history to be a reason for slavery that has been used in the South before the Civil War as reasons why slavery is okay and should exist. It has been greatly misused and uh, abused throughout church history. Even those who are great saints, wonderful theology, beautiful stories of God's grace at work in their lives, have been blind to this key area key implication of the gospel i've mentioned jonathan edwards before jonathan edwards i've said is the most important theologian in american history he lived at the beginning of the 1700s and and his his works today are are still some of the most profound things that you will ever read about the glory of god in our lives and yet jonathan edwards was a slave owner few weeks ago we looked at john newton john newton also in the 1700s he's he's famous for being a uh, former captain of a slave ship who converted to christianity and became one of the most vocal opponents against slavery what isn't well known about john newton is that he continued to be a captain of a slave ship for quite some time after he became a christian there was this blind spot in his life, where he missed God's calling when it comes to this evil institution. History is filled with those who have have argued from the Bible that slavery is permissible in our cultures. And because of that, some people want to get rid of the Bible in its entirety. I think that's, that's too much, that's going too far. If we take a closer look, even as we look at these passages that operate under the social norm of slavery like this one here, the Bible is 100% against the institution of slavery. Genesis, beginning of the Bible, starts with the creation of humanity and says this in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. First chapter of the Bible, God has already spoken the final word on slavery Because we are all created in the image of God, all of us have an inherent worth. All of us have an inherent dignity. And we should not be owned by others. And so here, at the very beginning, God has already said the final word on slavery. Slavery is unthinkable because of the image of God. But the Bible chronicles broken societies... Broken and sinful people, and so it still has quite a bit to say about slavery. The Old Testament makes provisions for how slaves should live and how they can be protected against exploitation. The New Testament does the exact same thing. Galatians chapter 3 tells us that slavery is not a part of God's new creation. It says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But that still doesn't answer our question of why the Bible allows or why the Bible permits slavery. To understand that, we have to to look at the difference between ancient slavery and modern slavery. Ancient slavery uh, was primarily economically driven It was rarely racially driven like we oftentimes think of when we think of the transatlantic slave trade. If you went into debt, then the way to get out of debt was not to declare bankruptcy. It was simply to sell yourself into slavery. For the overwhelming majority of people, slavery was temporary. In fact, very few slaves were slaves their entire lives. About 50% of them were freed by the time they turned 30. As someone who is about 30 and who has a great deal of student loan debt, I understand exactly what they are talking about here. Slavery in the first century was very different than what we see today. Slaves could own their own property. Uh, They could even own their own slaves. They were in complete control of their property, of their finances, and many of them actually were quite wealthy. This actually made quite a few of the old rich money in rome quite upset slaves weren't just designated to menial tasks they were merchants they were doctors they were businessmen they were teachers and they were government officials they were found throughout society some people sold themselves into slavery as a strategic move to gain roman citizenship Some actually preferred slavery to their own freedom when they realized that they would have a lot more security as a larger, as a part of the larger family unit of their master. Oh, in one sense, slavery was nothing like what we see today or what we think of today. Of course, not all slavery was good, although most of it was driven by economic decisions of those who were in slavery. Sometimes slavery was a form of exploitation. Many times, people who were prisoners of war, who were captured in war or abducted, uh, were forced into slavery. And if you think that Paul goes light on slavery, the beginning of the letter that we are in contradicts that. Verses 8 through 10 of chapter 1. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. For those who strike their mothers and fathers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality. And notice this word here. Enslavers, liars, perjurers, excuse me, perjurers. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Sometimes slavery was a form of exploitation. It was a form of abduction. And Paul says here at the beginning of chapter 1 in 1 Timothy, uh, under no uncertain terms is this form of slavery wrong. It breaks God's law. It grieves his heart. It is an abomination. And today, when we think of slavery, every single form of slavery that comes to mind is a form of exploitation. Oftentimes, it involves Abduction. And it is condemned in the New Testament. It's condemned right here in First Timothy. It's a breaking of God's law. So ancient slavery, quite different from what we think of, but it was still wrong. First Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is talking to slaves when he says this. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not can be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So seek out ways for you to become a free person if you are able to do so. What's more, the entire book of Philemon, if you've ever read Philemon, it is a book written by Paul trying to pressure a slave owner who is a Christian into thinking through the theological implications of the gospel, specifically in his role as a slave owner. The conclusion that Paul reaches or he wants Philemon to reach is that his slave, Onesimus, is his brother in Christ. And so how could he possibly receive him as anything less than a brother? Just listen to these words from Philemon. And notice the, the way that, that Paul is just so persuasive in his writing when he's, he's addressing this social situation he says this i am sending him onesimus back to you sending my very heart i would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel but i preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be under compulsion but of your own accord for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever no longer as a bond servant and that word means slave No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Every single thing that Paul writes in the letter of Philemon is addressed to philemon to get him to think that slavery is wrong and to free onesimus and it's in this context of ancient slavery that we can begin to see some of the parallels of this passage to today do you find yourself stuck in unrewarding work you find yourself regretting career decisions that you made when you're younger, but now you're stuck in a dying industry or an industry that has changed so much that you feel like you are just out of place. You want to, to change. You want to, to make a, a change, but you feel this duty to, rep, to, to provide for your families, and so you continue to endure this yoke of work, knowing that if you were to change, you would have to start From scratch at an entry pay position. Maybe you are in a place that you don't experience joy in your work. Or maybe you do. Maybe you do experience joy. Maybe you love your vocation. This passage has much to say to us this morning. Each verse looks at a different situation. The first verse looks at how we as Christians are to live or operate under non-Christian bosses. And the second verse looks at how we as Christians are to live and operate under Christian bosses. Let's read verse 1 again and look at this first situation. Let all who are under, the yoke, under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Charge here is very straightforward. If you're a Christian, every boss deserves your best effort. Honestly, we could end there, but let's look at the situation in Ephesus, this tendency that we have, and that the slaves in the, the first century had this tendency to justify that our situation is different. Apparently, some of the slaves in Ephesus struggled with this tension of living as a part of the kingdom of God, that there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, and the tension of still being a part of the kingdom of the world. And so these slaves in their zeal as new Christians, they, they decided, well, you know what? We're we're a part of the kingdom of God, and that's all we want to do. We, we just we just want to focus on the kingdom of God. We want to spend time reading the Bible, we want to spend time in fellowship with one another, we want to spend time in prayer, we want to seek God with every single fiber of our being. And because of that, they began to neglect some. Of their earthly tasks that God had given to them, I want you to imagine a school teacher. School teacher has just become a new Christian and they love Jesus wholeheartedly. They love Jesus so much that Jesus is the only thing that they think about. I don't know a lot about uh, teaching in a school environment because I've never done it, but I've heard one or two things, and that is breaks are few and far between. They are very rare to come by, and sometimes it can just be rare to even sit down and get off of your feet. Well, let's imagine that our new Christian teacher has such a passion for God that they begin to just sit at their desk and read the Bible. There's a class that needs to be taught, but they want to know more of Jesus. And so they begin to read the Bible more and more. The class becomes too distracting for them because they don't have a teacher looking over them. And so the the teacher says, well, I'm just going to go into the hallway and read there. And gradually they work their way to the teacher's lounge. and, And they eventually are spending most of their day reading the Bible in the teacher's lounge. Now imagine you're one of this teacher's co-workers. Even a supervisor, you're not a Christian, and this is your first experience, first real engagement with Christianity. What do you think of Christianity? It's made this man lazy. It's made this person neglect their duties. And that is the situation that is happening in Ephesus. The slaves were so focused on following Jesus that they were neglecting their responsibilities. Cicero was a famous uh, Greek and Roman writer and he describes this this very, very uh, great tension that people uh, in in the Roman world felt about slaves becoming uh, a part of a new faith, of a new religion. People were very skeptical whenever a slave would become a, uh, an adherent of Christianity or Judaism or something that not everyone else was a part of because they suspected that they would betray their masters That they would become worthless slaves. And so it's in that context that Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. And he's saying, look, slaves, I'm glad that you are Christians. I'm glad that you love Jesus. I'm glad that you love being a part of the church. But widows and and pastors are not the only ones who are deserving of honor. Your masters are too. Notice the three words that are used here that are significant words. The first one is yoke. Verse 1, it talks about the yoke of slavery. Paul is under no illusion that slavery is a good thing, that it is easy, that it is light, that everything that a master asks a slave to do is going to be something that they delight in doing. Many of you can relate to that. Even if you enjoy your vocation, the thing that God has called, called you to do, not every single part of it is something that you enjoy. It feels like a yoke. And yet Paul says to endure anyway. Notice that the next word that I want to draw attention to is regard. Again, Paul is under no illusion that every single master of these slaves is worthy of our respect. Some of them were mean. Some of them were vicious. Some of them were abusive. And yet Paul says to regard them with respect. Treat them with respect even if they aren't deserving of it. And the third word is honor. This is the same word that is used in the previous chapter to refer to the honor bestowed upon widows, to the honor bestowed upon pastors. And, and what Paul is saying is that that same type of honor that you show to people in the church is the same type of honor that you should show to your employer. For them as masters, for us it is employers. Notice the second half of this verse. The reason why Paul says all of this is because our work is a reflection upon God himself. We are to work before a watching well. We're supposed to work hard because when we don't, it's not just our reputation that suffers. It is God's reputation as well. Isaiah 52 describes this situation where God's reputation suffers because of the people of Israel. The people of Israel are living depraved, immoral lives to the point that all of the surrounding nations watch and observe and blaspheme the name of God because of the actions of the people of Israel. And that's what Paul has in mind here. How you do your work makes a statement about Jesus. How you do your work makes a statement about what you believe about Jesus. It doesn't matter if you are making copies or making a sale, if you are fixing a car, a house, or a computer. It doesn't matter if you're teaching a four-year-old how to tie their shoes or if you're teaching college classes. How you do your work reflects upon Jesus. But it's not just upon Jesus and God's character either. It also reflects on the message of the gospel. Paul says something similar to this passage in in Titus chapter 2. He says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I love that language there at the very end. Have you ever considered how your life, your actions, your attitude can adorn the gospel? can beautify the gospel. That doesn't mean that we make the gospel something that it isn't. It just means that God has given us the opportunity through our vocation to highlight what the gospel actually is through our actions. I love my daughter. She is absolutely beautiful, and yet there is a difference in her beauty when I dress her and when her mom dresses her. When I adorn my daughter, she is beautiful in spite of my adorning. When my wife dresses Mara, she is beautiful. And that beauty is accentuated by her adornment, by the way that my wife dresses her. God has given us the same opportunity with our lives. Will we distract or or take away from the beauty of the gospel with the way that we, uh, we, we hold ourselves accountable in our vocations? Or will we make the gospel even more beautiful, even more glorious, even a greater sight to behold through our actions? That's Paul's concern in verse 1. It's Paul's concern in verse 2 as well, but he looks at it through a different lens because he's not addressing slaves with non-Christian masters, but slaves with Christian masters. He has something different to say here. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they may serve, must serve all the better since those who benefit by the good service are believers and beloved. I have to imagine that the dynamic of the first century church was absolutely fascinating. Here you have a congregation... That is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Who were traditionally at war or hated one another. Here you have a congregation that is made up of both men and women. You have a congregation that is made up of both slaves and free people. A lot of the slaves who were a part of the congregation in Ephesus were likely in the same congregation as their owners. Just imagine how complex that would be walking into a church service and and those who sit right next to you or just down the pew or on the other side of the auditorium from you on a Sunday morning are those who are actually your master. You are technically their property. Every single time you gather, you declare that you are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. You recite what Galatians chapter three says that there is neither slave nor free Neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, all of us are equal before God. There is no distinction of favoritism. It's actually even likely that because the gospel most often took root in poor and marginalized parts of the community first, that those who had been Christians longest were slaves. Those who were the church leaders, the elders and the deacons of the congregation were slaves. As church leaders, they oversaw their own earthly masters. Perhaps some of their masters had become Christians because of the testimonies of these slaves. It's a beautiful picture of the, the complex, multifaceted body of Christ, and then Monday comes. The person, the slave who is an elder in the church, a leader, is now back on bottom having to answer to the the questions or the requests of their master. Yes, the distinctions are gone, and yet very clearly they are not fully gone. And this is is the, the context that Paul is addressing here in 1 Timothy. Some slaves were apparently taking advantage of this relationship. Taking advantage of the relationship that they had as brothers and sisters in Christ with their earthly masters. Like some of us, they had the tendency to treat their family worse than those who were outside of the family. and So they began to slack off at work because they were all Christians anyway. That is the context that Paul is addressing. And what Paul says here addresses this issue head on. And he says, you should look at your masters as your beloved. The New Testament makes it very clear that Christians are called to serve sacrificially toward all people, but especially toward other Christians. This is the mindset that is described by Jesus in John chapter 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you... All, uh, that you also should do just as have I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. The Christian life is a life that is supposed to be modeled by service, especially service for other Christians. We're not to take advantage of our relationship with our bosses, but are supposed to see that special relationship as a great source of motivation. To work all the harder. And so as we close, just want to remind us of this word, this this phrase that that should stick with us this week. Work well while the world is watching. Work well before a watching world. This passage in the rest of the New Testament gives us three charges, three reasons why we are called to work hard. We're to work hard, work well, because the world is watching. Try your hardest. Give your all. Even if you're not the most talented, be the hardest worker in your context. People are going to notice. Whether they are Christian or not, they will take notice. Work hard because the world is watching. Second charge from the New Testament is this. Work hard. Work well because God is our master. The worship team read a passage from Colossians uh, before... uh, in earlier in the service, it says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. When you work, you are working for Jesus. God is our master. And the final reason is this. We work hard because even though God is our master, God became our Servant. God became our slave. According to Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant. And that's the word here in 1st Timothy. That is translated as slave. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why do we work wholeheartedly in our vocation, no matter our context? It is because God sent Jesus and Jesus joyfully served us. The Christian life is one of service. It is one of sacrifice, and sometimes it is one of, sur- uh, of suffering in the midst of that service and sacrifice. Let us follow in the footsteps of our master to faithful service, even when it hurts, even when it is unpleasant, even when we feel no tangible benefit. Let us work well before a watching world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the charge of 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we ask that you would give us grace to be able to fulfill what you have put here. The words, the the charge that we have here, we ask that you would enable us, strengthen us, give us patience, and give us a mindset that is like that of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. God, it is easy to say these words on a Sunday morning, and yet when we get into Monday, it can be so difficult. And so, God, we ask that you would give us grace and that you would call these words to mind and give us wisdom on how to apply them to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.